Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Ladies and gentlemen, thrilled to have you here for another epic debate. If it's your first time here, consider hitting that subscribe button as we have many more debates here at Modern Day Debate yet to come. Many juicy, controversial debates. For example, at the bottom right of your screen, want to let you know if you have not heard about this, you guys, we are pumped. We will have the debate, Is Christianity Dangerous?, with Dr. Michael Shermer and... Mike Jones from Inspiring Philosophy. That's on January 8th. It's going to be epic, folks, and want to let you know, this is going to be a Kickstarter-funded event. In other words, if you would like to watch it live, it's only three bucks, the price of a cup of coffee. And so that Kickstarter link is in the description, folks. I'd encourage you, don't let it sneak up on you to where you might miss it live. Quick, click on that Kickstarter link so that you can, just for three bucks, you can basically sign up, you'll get to watch it live, and one last thing I want to mention about that, as we do our channel housekeeping stuff, is that this event, you might be wondering, well, why are you doing a Kickstarter? Well, basically, this opens up a lot of opportunities for us, guys. You could say it basically helps us bear a lot more risk. In other words, a lot of speakers, for example, Michael Shermer, New York Times bestseller, I mean, a lot of these people have huge opportunities. People are willing to pay them a lot of money to come speak. And so in order for us to help cover those speaker fees to where we can kind of take those bigger risks, well, you could say that many, hand, many hands make light work when it comes to kind of bearing and spreading the risk so that we can have these guests on for these bigger and more epic debates. And so do want to let you know that Kickstarter link is in the description. Watch it live by making a short and small pledge. Also, channel housekeeping stuff. Folks, I don't know if I've mentioned this. We are on Twitch. If you prefer Twitch over YouTube, hey, we are streaming there live right now. And so if that's your platform you prefer, well, we're over there. Hope it's useful. And we're also on virtually all major podcasts now. So we've gotten emails back from Pandora and iTunes. We're on there as well. Hope that's useful and enjoyable for you. And feel free to rate us at those as well. Also, channel housekeeping stuff. Want to let you know, leading into our debate for tonight, all of our guests' links are in the description. What are you waiting for? If you want to hear more from them, you can hear from them, more from them, after this debate, as they're all linked in the description. And want to let you know, we are going to have a tag team debate where each side is going to have about 15 minutes for their opening. Then we're going to have open conversation and then Q&A for about 30 minutes at the end. So if you happen to have a question, feel free to fire it into the old live chat. If you tag me with at Modern Day Debate, it makes it easier for me to get every question in that Q&A list. And then Super Chat, of course, is also an option. It'll bump your question to the top of the list and also give you an opportunity to make a comment toward one of the speakers or an objection that they, of course, would get a chance to respond to. Now, 
what I'm going to do is give a quick hello as we're thrilled to have our guests with us. This is going to be a lot of fun. So we're going to go from left to right as you see on your screen there, folks. First, we're going to say welcome back Erica, who is co-moderating with us last night. That was a fun one. And so glad to have you back, Erica. What can people expect to find at your link? And thanks so much for being here. Hey, it's, I'm always happy to be on Modern Day Debate, whether I'm debating or modding. You know, I love the channel, love to help out when I can. But it's been a while since I've gotten to come on and debate. So I'm, I'm super psyched to be here for that. And I'm very glad that everyone is being patient with my horrible lighting because like, I'm at my parents' house and I've got like this ancient lamp, you know, <laughs> casting shadows upon me as if I'm some kind of like uh, Stephen King monster. Um, but you can check out my channel at uh, Gutsy Gibbon. I generally cover paleontology, uh, primatology, zoology, human evolution, things like that. My background is I have a, a BSA in animal science, pre-professional, so veterinary stuff was my my plan to be. So a lot of, you know, bio there. Picked up a, a minor in biology as well as a minor in anthropology. And I'm currently finishing up my thesis um, for a master of research in primatology. So that's, that's kind of my background for those of you out there who, uh, I don't know, maybe you're curious, maybe not, but that's, that's my deal. Thanks so much. Thrilled to have you. And also thrilled to have you back, Dr. Cy Gart. It's been a while. We're glad to have you here. Should be a blast. What can people ex expect to find at your link? Uh, the first thing you'll see if you click on my website is uh, my book, The Works of His Hands, uh, Scientist's Journey from Atheism to Faith, which was published last year, 2019, and uh, is still available uh, and doing pretty well. Uh, also, you can find links to my blog, my YouTube channel, which is called Faithful Science, spelled S-Y-E-N-C-E, -E, and uh, my new podcast channel. So everything is on one website. Yeah, I haven't been on Modern Day Debate for a year and a half, and uh, I stopped debating for a while anywhere, and I'm glad to be back. Thank you, James. Thank you. And we will kick it over to Maddox. Glad to have you back. John, what can people expect to find at your link? Uh, so awesome to be here yet again. Uh, James is always trying to drag me to these uh, debates because he knows that I so much enjoy having mental combat. Um, so my channel is Logical, Plausible, Probable, where uh, I try to showcase things that are just that, logical, plausible, and probable, specifically regarding um, our existence, what's required for it, and from a macro view, what it means um, from a big picture and a uh, you know, more comprehensive perspective of what's required for our very existence. It's great looking forward to uh, this debate, and uh, hopefully we can provide some entertainment for the audience. And it's pretty entertaining looking at how all of the atheists right now are triggered already, and the debate hasn't even started yet. So I can only imagine what it's going to be like once we get into open discussion, but... Uh, Enough about me, let's kick it over to uh, the one and only Otangelo, who's even more hated on YouTube than I am. <laughs> Thrilled to have you, Otangelo. Yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure. It's fun to be again at your channel, uh, James. And uh, for who doesn't know me, I have a, a virtual library. Uh, it's uh, called reasonandscience.catsboard.com, uh, where I collect information about intelligent design. I have a YouTube channel Intelligent Design Academy, which is also about intelligent design, and another YouTube channel, which is The God Talk, which is more about having conversations with uh, people of all uh, uh, sorts, uh, with atheists, believers, and so forth. 
Thank you very much, Otangelo. And so, very excited to get the ball rolling tonight as we're going to have the ID side kick it off with their opening, which will be 15 minutes split between John and Otangelo with Otangelo starting first. Otangelo, the floor is all yours. Okay. Um, can can everyone see the screen? Can I start? Yes. Okay. One of the things that most distinguishes us from primates is the ability to speak. Noam Komsky, the most influential linguist of the last 50 years, wrote that language evolution and the brain mechanisms underlying it appear to be beyond serious inquiry at the moment. And the science paper from 2018 said, the molecular mechanisms underlying hominin brain evolution predating modern humans remain to be elucidated. Humans have a unique anatomy that supports our ability to produce complex language. Human speech and communication depends on an interdependent integrated, very complex system where at least nine parts and organ systems play an essential role. One, consciousness and memory. Two, a language. Three, the entire system and mechanic mechanics of human voice production and control. Four, the lungs, which are the source of acoustic energy for speech production. Five, the nervous system, which links various systems to the brain. Six, the brain for several functions. Seven, the ability to the expression of emotions through the face and body gesticulation. Eight, audition through ears to receive the sounds. Nine, muscle actions precisely coordinated by the brain. And the four processes used to create speech are breathing, phonation, resonance, and articulation. One, the idea that matter somehow by evolutionary processes can become conscious is absurd. Hard objects are never observed spontaneously to transform themselves into abstract ideas. Two, some of our mental abilities and emotional traits are certainly shared to some degree by other species, but language is without any homologue in any other species. Language evolution would have to start with simple grunts and gestures and progressing to more and more complex communication systems until reaching human language. And again, no plausible hypothetical evolutionary series has ever been proposed. Thus, evidence is consistent with a saltational origin. None of the evolutionary just-so stories come anywhere close to explaining how man might have acquired the astonishing ability to craft unlimited propositions and concepts and using a system of grammar and abstract words that are non-existent in the animal kingdom. Three, the mechanism for generating the human voice is an interdependent, integrated system. Natural selection would not select for components of a complex system 
that would be useful only in the completion of that much larger system. Four, the lungs serve as the bellows, providing the source of acoustic energy for speech production. Five, the nervous system links the brain to the mouth, face muscles, ears, lungs, and the vibratory and resonating system. At least seven nervous systems are employed. Six, following regions in the brain work together as a network to process words and word sequences to determine context and meaning. Speech demands extraordinarily fine and rapid motor control. Elaborate movements of the larynx, mouth, face, tongue, and breath must be synchronized with cognitive activity. Broca's area contributes to verbal fluency, language production, and the semantic aspects of language. Vernet's area has three sub-areas. One responds to spoken words and other sounds. The second to words spoken by someone else. The third with producing speech. The temporal pole is involved in high-level semantic representation and socio-emotional processing. The supramarginal gyrus is involved in phonological and articulatory processing of words. The angular gyrus is more involved in semantic processing. The auditory cortex lets us recognize sounds, an essential prerequisite for understanding language. The posterior terminal portion of the superior temporal sulcus provides access to meaning. And the triangular and orbital portions of the inferior frontal gyrus also play a role in semantic processing. Lastly, a number of researchers now reject classic localist models of language. Instead, they conceptualize language and cognitive functions in general as being distributed across separate areas that process information in parallel, rather than serially from one language area to another. Seven, science lists 27 different kinds of expressions of feelings and emotions. Intelligence, feelings, emotions are intertwined and connected with the human body, which responds to the way we think, feel, and act. Eight, muscle actions in the head, neck, chest, and abdomen are precisely coordinated by the brain. Nine, ears are necessary to hear and to receive the information. These nine points constitute an irreducible, interdependent, integrated complex system. How could it have evolved in a long evolutionary process? The brains of chimpanzees differ considerably from those of humans. Let's have a look at some numbers. The size of the hominid brain increased from about 450 milliliters at 3.5 million years ago, supposedly, to our current average volume of 1,350 milliliters. And the number of cells in the human brain, about 100 billion neurons. Brain size increases as a function of cell numbers, such that an 11 times larger brain is built 
with 10 times more neurons. Now let's make a calculation. The human brain has about 100 billion neurons. The hominid brain of our Ur ancestor 3.5 million years ago had a brain the size of about 33 billion neurons. That means there was an increase of 67 billion neurons in 3.5 million years. Chimps start breeding at about 10 years of age. That means that there would have been 350,000 generations in 3.5 million years. That means there would have had to be an increase of 200,000 neurons in each generation. So how could evolutionary mechanisms produce the 200,000 new neurons per generation? The task would be to specify each new cell precisely through a master program, which coordinates, instructs, and defines each neuron. There are sensory neurons, motor neurons, interneurons, and many other different neurons, but science does not know how many exactly. And now mutation rates are extremely low in humans, about 60 genome-wide per generation. So my end question, could 60 genetic mutations have produced 200,000 new neurons besides the macromorphological change of the entire organism per generation average during 350,000 generations. And with that, I, I end my uh, end presentation. Maddox is loading up his presentation, folks. James, are you on mute? Oh, go ahead. Yeah, it looks like you might be. James, can you hear us? Oh. Okay. Yes. Sorry about that. The uh, <clears throat> two mute buttons. But the floor is all yours, John. All right. So here in a second, James, I'm going to need to uh, share my screen. Uh, but before I do that, you know, a lot of the things that always get brought up in these uh, debates of, you know, oh, there's enough time, could it happen, do we see examples of these things, and, you know, a lot of very standard talking points get spewed and don't actually look at the underlying requirements for uh, things like uh, Tangela just described to actually become feasible. And, you know, one of the reasons I really decided to do this debate was the opportunity to have a discussion with a biochemist uh, like uh, Dr. Gart um, and, you know, really dive into the actual reality of what has to be taking place in order for the supposedly novel functions that have just occurred and have resulted in these ma magnificently complex engineering systems uh, that are not just the results of random chemical reactions, they're extraordinarily controlled. And throughout the course of this debate, uh, I really want to dive into, you know, what is actually observed in the lab and what we're actually um, would have to be executed by a biochemist in order to uh, accomplish some of these new novel functions. Because um, ironically, it's exactly what we're doing in labs across the world right now. We're attempting to create new novel uh, proteins and polypeptide chains, et cetera, et cetera, to create new novel functions 
or to hybridize uh, existing functions um, into you know, uh, one organism. And the complexity of that and the plausibility of that um, occurring, I, I'm very interested to find out if that's actually something that um, as a PhD biochemist thinks is remotely plausible to occur, even though humans and intelligent agents are able to make it occur, uh, if he actually thinks it would happen um, in any other context. Um, but before we get into open discussion to get into this more detail, um, James, I'm gonna go ahead and share my screen here. And I'm just gonna try and put this into context. Um, are you guys seeing my screen? Okay, so here we got a English to binary converter. And uh, something that I discussed in great detail and you know, many debates and have gone into great detail on is you know, the genetic code, the importance of it, the variety of the codes, the different things that have to be executed. Uh, as things we all know are very uh, real world scenarios. We got uh, single point mutations, we've got frame shifts. We've got all sorts of real problems that come into play um, in terms of disease and extinction. And then obviously in the context of supposed new functions coming into the equation and evolution, we have to get down into the real nitty gritty of what is actually being argued uh, to be taking place. So let's look at this. So we got, hello world, this is me showing atheists the obvious. Okay, so that's on one side. On the other side, we've got um, binary. So let's look at um, some basics. Of, let's just, just remove a space here. Oh man, now we got a Chinese symbol. Um, let's undo that and now we're back to hello world. Let's delete a couple of these uh, code sequences in binary. Oh, now we've got a major change. Now, something I'll talk to uh, Dr. Gard about later is on the fidelity rate that's required for uh, transcription and ongoing uh, survival, let alone the premise of evolution. Um, but let's, let's jump over to another screen. Okay, how difficult can this possibly be to comprehend? So I'm using about 21 letters of the 26 in the English language. Um, obviously we've got, I'm trying to match it up to amino acids um, in terms of what we have to account for. So while I'm using very similar letters between the two, obviously you should be able to perceive uh, jumping back and forth that there's a significantly different um, sequence of code, even though we're using the exact same or very similar letters. Now, uh, let's think about this in the context of uh, making this more complicated. We've uh, combined the two. Hello world, how, this is me being, showing atheists the obvious. How difficult can it possibly be to comprehend this? Now we're getting to something that's way more complicated. Now let's think about this. When you have to look at codons are being what's required, similar to these chunks of uh, Unicode that's being leveraged here, you're having to get the proper sequences because let's change these, zero, these ones to zeros. Oh, now we're gonna, oh, let's go, let's leave one. Oh, now I've got an eight. I mean, you start to look at the different variations. You don't have to change very much. Heads up, you've got about a minute to a minute and a half left. All right, I'm almost done. Um, then we start getting all sorts of changes that start kicking in. And very, very rapidly, you have the visualization of what we're talking about in terms of mutations, point mutations, frame shifts, and what is actually having to occur in order for new information to be expanded. Now, in the context of what we're viewing here, uh, yes, we're seeing words, but um, in the world of proteins, and again, Dr. Gark can't count me on this, but this is exactly what we're looking at in the spelling of uh, proteins and the translation of uh, gene sequences 
that being done by the ribosome and all these different things. This is what's happening in the real world. Now, the letters may be different. The end, uh, they may not be words, but we are looking at overall functions um, and different of the sequences that equal uh, the functional outcome of the protein. And that's when you're talking about the combination of multiple polypeptides. And obviously, as again, Dr. Garkin talked about in much more detail, but I mean, this is a very short sentence. We're talking about things that are thousands and thousands long and the level of fidelity that must be in place is extraordinarily high or you have failure and you actually have termination of the uh, protein synthesis. So I just wanna put this all into context and wrapping up now, but uh, you know, we, I've talked about this concept in theory many times and aside tonight, I wanted to just kind of visualize this in a little bit more detail and so we can stop talking about this in a purely hypothetical scenario. And let's look at this in terms of real world application of what is being argued by the evolution camp that uh, somehow these new uh, functions have just come into existence at through your undirected process and uh, mutation. Thank you very much. We <clears throat> will kick it over to Team Evolution and we'll give them the same flexibility in terms of their opening statement. So if you guys need an extra minute or two, we can do that. And so the floor is all yours, Erica and Sai. Thanks so much. Cool. So I think I'm going first. So I will go ahead and move to sharing my screen. Sai and I discussed, I, uh, I'm a little more long-winded than Sai, so I, I might be taking a little bit of a bias here on who is uh, spending more time um, in the opening statement. And um, I will just go ahead and start now. So my presentation is titled Evolution, Biodiversity's Mechanism, because that is put simply what evolution is. The backdrop here is a bunch of anthropoid primates. I, I love all of these primates. And in particular, I love how all of these primates are incredibly well-suited for their environments. They're all anthropoid monkeys. They're all essentially the same thing. And yet their environments are different and they've tackled life's problems in different ways. This is what we would call natural selection. So let's talk about the case that Sai and I are making today. So Sai and I are making the case that life and modern biodiversity is the result of biological evolution by natural selection. The case that we are not making is that this process definitively precludes someone or something implementing evolution as a mechanism or perhaps spurring abiogenesis. As people directly involved in science, and with the scientific method in general, our goal is always to analyze the data, testing via experiment when we can, letting the results lead us to the conclusion with the understanding that such a conclusion may change as our data does. Now in science, parsimony is key. Currently, every relevant field in science agrees that evolution by natural selection is the most parsimonious explanation for biodiversity on Earth. This is incredibly important because many of these fields are largely independent of one another, and yet they're reaching this same conclusion. Nearly as important is the ability of evolutionary theory to make correct predictions. So I'm going to make some predictions for this debate, and they're not really predictions now because you guys went first, but uh, that our opponents are going to have models that boil down to the following simplified statements. This is, this is absolutely simplifying it intentionally. But I think John is going to argue that DNA is a code, codes require coders, thus young earth intelligent design is a thing, because both our opponents are indeed young earth intelligent design advocates. And that Otangelo is going to argue that various aspects of biology are irreducibly complex, thus young earth intelligent design is a thing. Um, and I think that I was kind of dead on on both of those. Now, as far as models go, neither of these statements can act actively as a model. They're, they're just statements. And, and that's kind of my problem with both of them. But the interesting thing is, 
We're apes, the earth is old, and evolution happens regardless of the nature of abiogenesis or the complexity or irreducible, uh, the irreducible nature of it. So let's talk about some of the cool predictions that evolution, evolutionary theory makes that ID doesn't. So intelligent, or sorry, intelligent design. So evolutionary theory predicted that life can be traced back to a single or a handful of common ancestors. This has been shown to be the case via thousands of phylogenetic analyses, all of which show a gradient of shared and novel traits across life with no line in between the clades. Evolutionary theory also predicted that the genome would contain gratuitous redundancy and junk DNA. That's kind of what we call it. Um, now, while this is contested by some members of ENCODE back in 2012, subsequent works, specifically some knockout tests, as well as testimony from actual ENCODE researchers themselves have shown us that the maximum functionality for the human genome is likely between 12 to 25%. Primarily, ENCODE's results come from a very generous usage of the word of what uh, the definition rather of the word functional. So this is a very generous estimate for full functionality and I can, I'm happy to have that discussion. Evolutionary theory predicted that endogenous retroviruses were the remnants of ancient viruses embedded in the genomes of organisms, which can aid in tracing lineages. These ERVs revert back to behaving like viruses when xenotransplanted, and they corroborate classic phylogenies. Evolutionary theory predicted that humans would be shown to be genetically closest to the great apes, recapitulating what the morphology dictated decades earlier. Even creationist taxonomists were saying this. Uh, Linnaeus was famous for saying, you know, I'm going to bring down the wrath of all the theologians because I, I simply can't figure out a reason to put humans as not apes. Now, not only are chimpanzees and bonobos our closest living relatives, but our shared similarity across the genome is greater than both those shared between rats and mice and those shared between lions and tigers. This technology is literally like a, a souped up paternity test. So it's not super complicated. Morphology, of course, corroborates this. Every single trait that we have that would make a gorilla a gorilla or chimpanzee a chimpanzee um, and all of, you know, both of them apes also includes humans as being members of the hominoid group. We have the Y-shaped molar, we have the brain to body size ratio, we have the limb ratio within error bars. This is just the case. When you're classifying humans, that's where we land. But paleontology is important too, because evolutionary theory predicted that we would see morphologic change over geologic time between any species separated by significant periods. Evolutionary theory predicted that none of these transitional forms would be hindered by their half structures. The evolution of any given trait must offer a fitness benefit at any stage that it's in. And boy, do we see that. We see it in the tetrapods, which each, with each of these species being a, a stellar animal in its own right. Morphologic change through geologic time. We see it in the whales, morphologic change over geologic time from terrestrial mammal to aquatic mammal. And we see it in birds, morphologic change over geologic time from non-feathered theropods up through Archaeopteryx and indeed to the modern birds. Of course, anthropology is where I care about it because I study extant primates. Evolutionary theory predicted that we would find dozens of morphologically distinct ape species separated by geologic time in the fossil record that show a gradient in the emergence of human traits from the ape traits. And boy, howdy, do we see this. I have asked dozens of creationists where we draw the line here, which of these skulls are ape and which of these skulls are human. And not only do they all give inconsistent answers that differ widely from one another, but not a single one can present criteria for how we can actually delineate which is ape and which is human. Of course, the problem is humans are apes. We have all of the traits that they have, so it's impossible to delineate. We could also talk about the importance of the transitional species, such as the Australopithecines, which occupy what you know any creationist would have begged to see back in the 60s. It's a perfect ape man. We've got the parabolic palate, the bull-shaped pelvis, the inline big toe. We've got the foramen magnum in the right position. The angle of the valgus knee and of the femoral head is appropriate. 
Um, but ge geology is also important because evolutionary theory predicted that geologic time would separate the slow morphologic change dictated by natural selection. It also predicted that the environment is always changing and organisms will change in tandem. Geochemistry allows us to peer into paleo environments and accurately construct ancient environmental conditions, which has led us to discover more about the five mass extinctions. Each of these five mass extinctions alone precludes young earth creationism and thus young earth intelligent design due to the conditions necessary for their existence being absolutely impossible to cram into 6,000 years. Which leads me to my point on physics, which is that evolutionary theory in tandem with geology predicted that earth was very ancient indeed. This is supported by the radioactive decay law. Now, the radioactive decay law covers the nature of decay rates and tells us that they don't change in meaningful ways over time. Creationists admit this. The rate team, a team of a crack team of creationist geologists discontinued in 2005, had to admit that a young earth position cannot be reconciled with the scientific data without assuming that exotic solutions will be discovered in the future. No known thermodynamic process could account for the required rate of heat removal, nor is there any known way to protect organisms from radiation damage. This is the problem. When you cram 4.5 to 4.8 billion years of heat into a 6,000 year time period, you end up with a hot mess. At minimum, you're vaporizing the granitic crust of the earth several times over. And at maximum, you're dealing with enough heat to, to match 5,000 trillion one megaton H-bombs, roughly 2.2 times 10 raised 38 ERGs, or an earth's worth of TNT. Now, radiometric dating gets poo-pooed on by a lot of creationists, but one thing we can all agree on is that people like money in a $257 billion a year industry depends on radiometric dating working via basin modeling. Um, actually, my fiance's brother works, is working in an oil field right now in West Texas, and they're working on a Permian site. But statistics is the newest and more one of my new favorites to use when talking about intelligent design, because statistics tell us, tells us that common ancestry is essentially assured, statistically speaking, using a Bayesian analysis. For those of you who may not know, a small p-value is good when you're testing hypotheses because it tells you that whether or not you can reject the null. Now, this paper to the left says, we overwhelmingly rejected both species and family separate ancestry, this is specifically within the primates, uh, due to infinitesimal p-values. Many of these data sets reject species separate ancestry strongly. The probability of obtaining a test statistic more extreme than the one observed under species separate ancestry model um, is essentially approaching or greatly exceeding the probability of picking a correct atom at random among the estimated 10 to the 80th atoms in the known universe. And then they did this again with homologous proteins. Actually, it was the reverse. They did homologous proteins first, and then they did the primate one. Um, so evolution makes thousands of predictions each and every year, from the truly important strides in virology and medicine, like those seen in HIV, to what I did with my thesis with primates, just comparing their dentition and sexual dimorphism. Intelligent design predicts nothing. This is the problem. It is the model that wasn't. People who, who, who propone for, um, or rather who propose intelligent design can't denote created kinds. They cannot grapple in a young earth contest at least with um, context at least, which both our opponents are with the overwhelming evidence for an ancient earth from geology and physics, as well as the morphologic change over geologic time. They cannot clarify specifically what makes a design a design. And most importantly, intelligent design lacks any semblance of a model or testable predictions and relies almost entirely on poking holes in evolution. As such, it has an abysmal literature base and can't base and cannot be taken seriously as a scientific hypothesis alongside more robust works work such as evolutionary theory, which leads me, leads me to my conclusion, uh, talking super fast, which is while we can enjoy a fun discussion, conventional science will still chug onward while we're having this, paying little to no mind to the ID community, consistently utilizing evolutionary theory to better the world around us. And that's my, that's my presentation. Thanks so much, Eric.
Erica, we will be switching it over to Dr. Seidgart. The floor is all yours. Thank you. And uh, I'd like to thank each of my uh, co-debaters uh, here for their presentations. Also, before I forget, I just want to wish everyone a Merry Christmas. It's a couple of days from now, if I'm not mistaken. So, uh, so I mean, that's a hard act to follow what Erica just presented. So <laughs> I, I'm not going to try to, uh, to expand on anything that she said. Uh, my view is uh, somewhat unusual, perhaps. Uh, let, me, let me show, I only have one slide to show. So if I could do that, James, I will attempt it. Absolutely. Okay. Is that visible? Yes. Okay. Uh, it's my contention that actually evolution is not controversial. Uh, and just to start that off, this is a slide from the, the uh, Answers in Genesis website. And if you look at the, uh, what, you, what you see on the, on the right there in red and then branching into yellow is a phylogenetic tree. Looks very familiar to any evolutionist. And the difference, of course, is that it starts with something called the uh, created cat kind, which is a species of animal uh, that survived, got on the ark, unlike other potential uh, members of that family. And once it got off the ark, it then diversified into all the species of Felix that we see today. And in fact, that part of the curve uh, from the arc forward looks very much, and if you go into the details, it's almost identical to the kind of evolutionary tree that we draw when we do phylogenetics. Now, why is it that Answers in Genesis, which is one of the premier young earth creationist anti-evolutionist groups, actually talks about evolution? And by the way, they, they contend that this is evolution almost the same way as the way evolutionary biologists think of it. In other words, it occurs through natural selection, radiation, uh, mutation. That's some slight differences there. But the reason they had to do that is because it was very clear that no matter how large the ark, all the current species on Earth could not possibly fit. And so what the comment is then, then that, the, that the Bible talks about kinds, and it was the kinds that incorporated all the current species. And once they got off the ark, we had the process of evolution. And uh, I can stop sharing. Uh, here it is. OK. So and, and in fact, we also hear, I don't know how microevolution is a thing. Uh, it, there's a very little debate, for example, that bacteria can evolve to have uh, resistance to antibiotics and other examples of evolution within a species. So the real argument is not whether evolution is true or not. The real argument is what can evolution explain and what can it not explain? And the first thing to talk about is abiogenesis, the origin of, the origin of life, which 
I don't believe evolution can explain, and, and many other uh, evolutionary creationists, as I am, uh, also think that abiogenesis is off on its own. In fact, everybody thinks that way. Richard Dawkins doesn't talk about abiogenesis in relation to evolution. Darwin never mentioned the origin of life. He mentioned it actually only very briefly, but had no clue. And evolutionary theory is not equipped to deal with things like the origin of the genetic code, with things even like uh, the origin of photosynthesis. Many of the amazingly complex and beautiful systems that we find in life uh, occurred probably before what we call the last common uh, universe, last universal common ancestor, Luca. And in a way, I think of Luca as the analogy to the Big Bang. We can we can't go much back before Luca. We don't know how Luca arose. So there's all kinds of possible answers for that. And a lot of research is going on. It's after Luca that we understand that evolution now plays a role through the normal mechanism of natural selection, replication, mutation, etc. And then we get to humans, and this is, relates somewhat to Otangelo's uh, remarks, but I won't, I won't go into it at this moment. We'll save it for the discussion. But again, I believe that when we get to humans, we do have some real problems uh, in using evolutionary theory to explain everything we know about human beings. I'm not talking about the, the, the physical anthropology that Erica was talking about. That I think is fairly clear. I'm talking about behavioral aspects, including language, uh, including some brain function of humans that really are, and I agree with Otangela, were really quite remarkable. Uh, now, the question comes up about design. Uh, Got about a minute Again, left. it turns out that design is something that is almost universally agreed to. Richard Dawkins talks about design in biology. Again, the argument is not whether biology and living systems are designed, but how did they get designed? And there are many answers to that. But it's very difficult to argue against the possibility of design. So uh, I think with that, yeah, I'm just about done. So uh, we'll go on to the discussion. Thanks so much. And I want to remind you, everybody, that all of our guests are linked in the description. So if you'd like to hear more from them, you can click on those links below. We'll jump into open conversation. The floor is all yours, all. Well, real, real quick before we get to... Before we get going, since as usual, Erica spewed the usual talking points, even though never mentioned one thing about Young Earth or uh, Deep Time in either one of her opening statements, she wanted to go down that rabbit hole. Um, but since you addressed me talking about code, Erica, um, Dr. Gart, um, could you please uh, educate the individuals that are watching this right now that the genetic code is a literal code, it is not metaphor, nor is it simile? Uh, <laughs> Uh, I watched. I had a very fun time watching your debate with uh, Jeffrey Williams, where he went down that rabbit hole. Uh, and, and ironically, sir, um, I actually had a debate and had multiple conversations with your partner, and uh, she also holds that it's not a literal code. So, um, would you mind uh, informing her and the uh, rest of the audience here on MDD that it's actually a literal code, not metaphor, simile, 
John, that's inaccurate. Well, the last conversation we had, what I said to you was, what I'm arguing is that there's a debate. Some people say there is, and some people say there isn't. We had this chat like last Well, week. I'm pretty sure that this has been answered quite some time ago. So that's why I'm asking uh, the, uh, the, the PhD in the room, <laughs> if that has been well-established for quite some time, that this is actually a code. It's not being debated inside the halls of academia in terms of what's actually being ex executed inside biological systems. Yeah, that's correct, um, and and I I agree with Erica. I, I I we she and I had discussed this, and I never heard her say that DNA is not a code. The genetic code is not a code. But anyway, to answer no, 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 your I, question, not you, I'm talking about her. If you, if yeah, you I watch, never if, heard. If you watch my debate, if you watch my debate with her not that long ago, you would come to a very different conclusion. But continue. Okay, well, anyway, to answer the question, uh, I've not only uh, it's one of my pet peeves with. Atheists, and by the way, not with scientists, but with atheists uh, who have come up with this very strange idea that the genetic code is a metaphor for a code. And uh, I actually have on my on my YouTube channel, I actually have a response video to Rationality Rules, who made this point in a video in 2017. And it's inaccurate. He gets a lot of things wrong. I mean, basic biology, he, he gets wrong. So yeah. Uh, the genetic code is definitely a code. It, it has all the features of a code. It does whatever, everything a code does. It's the first code, the first example of something that means something else in the universe. And it's of course in all of life. Um, but having said that, the question of the genetic code's existence is, as I said, not answered by evolution. I know people who are studying the evolution of the genetic code, and it's an extremely difficult topic because it, because it belongs in the abiogenesis. Well, well, let me, let me uh, ask for a clarification on that then, because um, I have directly written, uh, read papers and seen quite a few discussions about the variations in the genetic code being the direct result of evolution, not the origin, but the few, very few variations of it. That's um, why that's so, that's right. So uh, I would have to say I would have to disagree with you in the context that uh, those changes are attempting to be explained and defended by evolutionary theory. Yeah, and I, I don't really understand, and I would love to get your opinion on this. Um, you know, when we have things that are start and stop codons that mm -hmm. can be amino acid or reciprocals, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I'm not really sure how, without having simultaneous, uh, multiple simultaneous mutations inside of a system for uh, translation, and obviously, you know, without collapse of protein synthesis, like how is it a remotely plausible scenario in which that can be accounted for? It's very difficult and, and very rare, and that's why all of these um, variations are either in mitochondria or in very primitive organisms, some of which have very high mutation rates. You're right, it's, it takes at least two mutations, one in the tRNA genes and one in uh, the aminoacyl, amino, uh, aminoacyl tRNA synthetase genes to have a change in the code. But the real problem with evolution of code is kind of what you alluded to. If you suddenly have a stop code on, which used to code for lysine, <laughs> all those proteins that have lysine now stop in the wrong place. So they're very rare, uh, but occasionally they can happen. And I, I actually have a slide on this, but I, I, I think I'll show it later if we, 
if we need to. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you uh, you clarifying that because that's that's one of the things I think gets glossed over on a very regular basis. Of, yeah, it, it things it's, that actually have to be accounted for in this, and then from a macro view, when we're talking about you know expansion, uh, you know, oh, we have a duplicate gene that just turns into a new uh, functional uh, protein outcome. The, well, let, uh, let me kind of forget about like what's actually having to be accomplished to result in this new novel function. It's not let, just oh, it's chemical reactions. That. A little bit different than. Let me address that because you 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 raised that question in your opening to me. How how is it possible to get uh, you know the kind of thing that you showed with your with your uh, software code? How how does that work in proteins? And that's a real good question. And evolutionary biologists have considered about have, have thought about it and proposed various things. There's an answer from a evolutionary biologist named. Uh, uh, Andreas Wagner, he's German. Uh, he wrote a book called The Arrival of the Fittest. And what he uh, admits is that it's not enough just to have, just to say, okay, you have a mutation and you get a new, a more fit phenotype. How do you get to that fit phenotype? When you have, as you showed, you have a set of codons which code for very specific protein that works quite well, and now you have a mutation, what are the chances that that mutation is going to make the protein, quote, better or more fit? And here's where biology or biochemistry differs from software. And that is, it's extremely robust. Uh, the robustness of proteins is quite remarkable. And by robustness, what I mean is, and this is what Wagner and other people have also done, is if you take a particular protein sequence and you make changes in it, you do site-specific mutagenesis, you change one amino acid for another, it's amazing how many changes you can make and the protein still retains its function. That's what is meant by robustness. And so what he did was he kept making changes and he kept getting the same uh, function out of the protein, even when several or sometimes even half of the amino acids in a protein had been altered to a different amino acid. And then he made one more change and all of a sudden a different function appeared because now that last change was such that it changed the conformation of the protein. It changed the active site. It changed what substrates could, could bind to it. So all of a sudden you have what looks like, wow, a mutation out of the blue. But in fact, it's a mutation that occurred after several other mutations that had no effect on the protein function. Precursors, they're, they're precursor mutations. Yes, exactly. So the other thing that's very important to understand is that we talk about evolution occurring from mutations and most people, and I did too at one point, think that okay, an animal's walking around, everything's fine, gets a mutation and now it changes and it gets natural selection. That's almost never happens. What mutations do is they cause variation in the proteins. So within a population, you'll have, within a, the four of us, for example, if you take any gene, we'll have slight differences in, in, that, in the gene sequence. Not because we had a mutation, but we inherited that mutation from some previous uh, ancestor. Now, 
So you could have a mutation. Most mutations are harmful and they, and they kill the cell and that's it. Who cares? The cell goes away. The, the next largest group are neutral. They have no effect. So you have all these neutral mutations hanging around that don't really have any positive effect. And then, and then the environment changes. It gets colder. And so if you had a mutation that caused longer hair, not when it happened, but maybe 10,000 years later, those animals that have that longer hair do better than the ones with the shorter hair. So now that mutation has produced a selective advantage. Didn't do it by, it didn't do it originally. It did it when the environment had the effect on the fitness of that mutation. Now, in, in line with that, I don't want you and I to be dominating this, so if, yeah. folks feel free to jump in here, but I mean, I hear those types of supposed defenses of evolutionary theory on a regular basis, but as we discover more and more, we're realizing, not, maybe not in every case, but in many, many cases, we're starting to discover that the capacity for that longer hair already existed. And now is being expressed. So that would, this ultimately boils back down to the dramatic difference, you know, in the chart you put up there, oh, there's these very similar phylogenetic trees, et cetera, et cetera. I'm like, okay, fair enough, no problem. Um, the key difference is, was the capacity pre-existing or did it form after the fact? The thing is, it doesn't and, and, and that, that's, the, that's the primary thing because Erica, yes, it does. If the capacity already existed, then your entire, your entire concept of evolution coming from things that do not yet exist and then being created, new, new novel functions coming to existence through, under, through mutation and natural selection is dramatically different than the capacity already being in place and now being expressed based on the new environmental variable factors, which we are now being able to clearly delineate in research. And then beyond that, the last thing I'm gonna say, and I'll shut up for a while, is I find it very entertaining, Erica, that you continue to try and push down, go down the rabbit hole of the non uh the junk dna the non-functional genome because that is the literal antithesis of that is what's being discovered no and, i'm sorry john you're, and, you're i'm gonna right. finish my point and i'm gonna shut up and you, you can short you can kind and of pithy john yeah. you, or have, you we or have, we not, have we or have we not been discovering all the way up until this year based on new observation technologies that research technologies that there's whole portions of the genome that we thought were completely inoperable didn't do anything but now based on cell type, it turns out whole chunks of the genome that we thought had no function, no activity whatsoever, we're now discovering, oh wait, it's totally active, but only in this cell type because up until relatively recently, A, we were not being able to look at things in vivo and B, we were looking at mostly, you know, the same types of uh, cell types versus looking at the, uh, going into deeper and deeper detail of the hundreds of different cell types that we have. Gotcha. So, Want to give Eric a chance to respond. That's important thing we have to look at. And okay, then so, once we yeah, hear, well, let's give Erica plenty of time to respond. And then also uh, eventually we'll work our way to poor Otangelo, who hasn't gotten to talk yet. Go ahead, Erica. I know. Yeah, yeah. So first of all, no, John is entirely incorrect on that. And I've actually, not only have I asked plenty of people, but this is like open source on Google Scholar. You can look at the ENCODE researchers' comments on the project themselves. What John is talking about is the fact that 
we are increasingly finding smaller and smaller and smaller portions of the genome that sometimes has some function with regard to regulation or it's doing some new thing or whatever. But this is why I mentioned knockout tests in my opener, because you can take a mouse and knock out half of the thing's genome. And this animal is going to move forward, have mouse babies with another mouse, and those mice are also capable of reproduction. And what that suggests, and when I say suggests, I mean heavily supports, is the fact that most of the genome is not doing anything. Now, that's kind of the point, because evolutionary predicted that there would be quite a bit of redundancy. So not only are you incorrect in, in what the literature is actually saying, but experimentally, that, that idea has been blown away quite some time ago. Okay, Nothing last thing I'm going to say, I'm going to let Angelo go. Erica, it's... Because John jumped around to quite a few topics as well. You know, he, he, you do the touch and go. Now, with regard to the deep time, as I explained in my opener, deep time is irrevocably tied to evolutionary theory. The reason deep time is brought up and why I bring it up every time is because not only are you and Otangelo both vocal young earth creationists, but deep time and evolution cross corroborate one another at every single level. So the two are, are you can't parse them apart. And in fact, geology offers some of the most concrete preclusions, not just to um, not just to young Earth creationism, but because of how it corroborates um, evolutionary theory, indirectly, this creates huge problems for intelligent design. The last thing I want to say is, again, I and, and you know, absolutely no um, disagreement with with Sai, you know, I, I don't know what um, kind of what what literature he's read on it. But I to prepare for this, I read quite a, I did quite a decent literature search. And yes, there are, as I said, in our conversation last week, John, there are individuals who say that DNA is a literal code. There are other individuals that say it is metaphorically a code. And there are yet still others who say that it has nothing to do with the code and a better, uh, a better analogy because of how proteins are assembled within um, the axial cells would be an ingredient list. So, you, you know, you can say this is done, this is over with whatever, but that's just not what the literature is saying. And, and I would know, I read all your papers and took notes on them. So, so Erica, so Eric, if, yeah. even if it's, hang, hang on, hang on, she just, direct, she just directly addressed me. Hang on, I, I have two sentences, I have two sentences. Erica, even if it's, she just addressed me, James, and I'm gonna shut up after this. I'm, I'm, I'm happy with what I've said. And I can provide links as well, if need be, to back up every claim that I've made, or you can just go back and watch my, my PowerPoint where I've cited my sources. Yes, I want to add in regards of DNA, there is always a confusion here. When someone says DNA is a code or it's uh, in a metaphorical way, a code. In my understanding, DNA is not a code. What do I mean with that? DNA is a semantophoretic uh, molecule. It is like a hard disk in the computer. So DNA is just a, a, a deoxyribonucleotide. So what happens? It stores actually genetic information through the genetic code. Why? Because the codons, they are three triplet codons, which are assigned to amino acids. And there are 64 different 
triplet codons which assign to 20 amino acids. So there is an assignment here. And we are talking about that assignment, which is actually the code or a cipher or however you want to call it. And the huge problem here for naturalists, for materialists, is that assignment or giving meaning to something always comes from intelligence. So you have to account for the fact that these three nucleotides, these codons, they are assigned to 20 amino acids. So where does that assignment come from? That is one problem. The other problem is you have genetic information stored in the genome, which directs the making of proteins and also the making of microRNAs, which direct the, the expression of the genome to the gene regulatory network. So, and then you have also to account for the hardware. This that is like, for example, the ribosome, which is an extremely complex factory, which is in a literal sense, a factory which produces and assembles proteins in an enormously complex manner. And um, the ribosome is life essential. Uh, uh, materialists, they have to account for and explain how the ribosome could have emerged prebiotically before actually life, life even started. And we are talking here about a, a molecular factory which has about 200 assembly proteins. The, the, the ribosome has to be assembled first. It has 75 cofactors which help to assemble the, the ribosome. And there are signaling pathways inside the ribosome there are the 20 TR, the 64 tRNAs, which also are essential. There are the amino acid tRNAs, which are essential. This is a multi-part factory, which has to work in a joint venture together in order to manufacture proteins. And gotcha. there are- Just because there are a lot of points, I, I do want to, we do have to kind of switch over to someone new soon, just because there's a lot to keep track of, both for uh, the speakers and the audience. Okay. Uh, if either Sai or Erica runs to respond, and then I know that John had a response for Erica that we have to get back to. Yeah, Sai, be, be my guest. I talked last. Well, I, I mean, uh, Altangelo knows that I, that I agree with him about uh, the genetic code, the, the ribosome, and uh, I, I think that, as I said in my opening, uh, the issue of abiogenesis is an incredibly difficult, controversial, and uh, wide open field of science uh, that I believe uh, also, because I am a Christian, I believe also should include theology. But I don't see that with evolution. In other words, as I said before, once once we have LUCA, once we have a cell that has those amazing uh, components in it, and I mentioned a couple, but there are many more than that. Once we have that, I don't see the argument against evolution, either scientifically, theologically, or any, or logically, in fact. Now, one thing I think is important, and, and this goes to John, is, is really to understand that when you, when you study biology, and, and I think everyone here knows this, uh, you find that logic doesn't work very well, okay? There are a lot of things about biology that really define logical it's not the way we would do it okay which is why i don't like the term intelligent design i believe there is design in life i call it divine design because i think it 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 originates from god but 
but it, it, it it's not like we're really that God is a really clever software engineer and kind of made things the way we do. And what I think about evolution is that it's a natural law. It's it's a natural law like gravity. It's a beautiful natural law. And uh, theologically, I believe that God created all natural laws, including gravity, including evolution. And it's brilliant because it works. And it works in a way that we don't, we're not completely sure that we understand every detail of how it works. There are some places that have to be filled in. But Erica pointed out the amazing consistencies between, you know, both fossil records, uh, molecular biology, genetic analysis, everything fits together to give a very coherent picture of the general picture of evolution. And the reason I, I stressed that, you know, even young earth creationists accept some form of evolution is because it's really undeniable that that's the way life works. And I, I, I think it, I actually think it's time to sort of maybe drop arguments against evolution, maybe combine them with intelligent design to some degree, if, if, if that theologically useful. Well, well, uh, well so in, in line with what you're saying there, I think uh, it seems to go back to a key point that I made, that, that not to you, I'm not directly what I'm about to say to you, but it seems to the vast majority of the, just say, atheist evolution types that I deal with online, the entire premise of something being pre-programmed seems to fly over their head of pre-existing capacity and through adaptation and species and the, the, the pre-existing templates, if you will, that can be expressed to create a new, uh, a new species already being pre-existent. To be honest, yeah. when you actually look at things, you see this, like the capacities were here. Now we have alteration and now we have this. And your point that you were making about uh, we wouldn't do it this way. It's not logical. I, I'm gonna actually gonna have to categorically disagree with you. What you're actually stating, or what's what's I think led to your position you just took there, is that up until very very recently, our technology wasn't at a level to even understand what the hell is going on from a technological perspective inside of our bodies. So when we're getting into dual use syntax, we're getting into three dimensional scaffolding, or in terms I'm talking about from a coding perspective. When we're getting into uh, simultaneous computation and all the different things that are occurring inside of our bodies to enable life to exist and for these complex systems to function, we didn't even know it was possible right. to be done. Right. Now, in computer technology and in nanotech that humans are trying to accomplish right now, we're like, oh my goodness, we didn't even know that this, we didn't even know to look for this, right? So now, for example, um, we know that there's multiplex coding going on inside of the genome. And we thought about that, right? But until relatively recent modern times, the, and by that I mean like last you know, 30 years, the, it wasn't even remotely plausible to be able to actually do that. We know that in theory, but actually ex executing that technologically was not even remotely feasible. Now we're finding out this is exactly what's happening in enabling life to exist. There you go. And so the point I'm making is to take the position that because we don't know how something does or our technology hasn't quite gotten that advanced yet <laughs> is not evidence in favor of uh, intelligent agency being an active player. I don't mean this as an insult by any stretch of imagination. I mean, I think it just comes from like humans in general. We didn't even know it was possible. And 
yet we've been arguing that all this stuff happened without that requirement being in the equation. Um, to me, that's like a, a child uh, coming in and being like, oh, well, it's just how it happens. And then you're the parent looking at it and being like, hang on, <laughs> there's a ridiculous amount of engineering that went into you know this toy you're playing with kind of thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, there, there's a there's a, a a member of Discovery Institute, Michael Denton. I I, I don't know if you've read oh, his. Yeah. I, so I have. so he is a great fan of of uh, Richard Owen, who who was a contemporary of Darwin, who postulated that there were biological laws that we don't understand, and that's very much in tune with what you're saying about capacity. So I, I just give an example. We know that there's a lot of a lot of creatures can fly. Okay, insects, birds, bats, from all different phyla. And they all fly a fairly similar way. They all fly by flapping wings and creating a vacuum underneath. And But there's no creature that has ever developed jet propulsion. Now, there's no reason why they couldn't, because there are jets in biology. There are creatures that shoot water or air out the back. But no creature has ever figured out how to how to fly with jet propulsion and okay that might that's a sort of a silly thing to say except that this may be an indication of some kind of biological law that not everything is possible and eric can go can go into more detail on this yeah i'd love but, to in just a second yeah I'll, I'll just finish uh one thing that's important to know about evolution is it doesn't promise everything it there are there are laws there are things that, as you said, capabilities, capacities that biology has and, and some that they don't have. And so, you know, not everything goes. And I, I know Erica has more to say yeah, on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I totally agree with you, Sai. I mean, the, the, the evolution of organisms is entirely constrained by the environment that it's in. This, this is exactly how creatures change to meet the needs and increase the fitness in a given environment. This is why uh, oftentimes people mix up what fitness is and why it's important to define because, um, for instance, a, a bacteria that may wreak havoc in your body um, when, when in the presence of antibiotics will, will be destroyed and then you get antibiotic resistance and then all of a sudden this organism is thriving in the antibiotic resistance environment and you put it back in the original one and it's less, it's less fit than its progenitor. Um, well, that's because fitness is defined by an environment. And I want to talk about something really quickly that I that I think is very um, very interesting about this conversation. To me, it seems like from the intelligent design uh, team, what we see a lot of is incredulity at the micro level and missing the forest for the trees at the macro level. So it's it's a lot of I don't think that X can happen at the micro level. Therefore, allow me to impose arbitrary lines in what a species at a macro level can or cannot do. Now, this would be fine if it weren't for the fact that multiple fields corroborate the fact that large organisms can cross these boundaries and frequently do. So this is my problem with intelligent design. And, and you know, I've met plenty of theistic evolutionists and, and regular biologists alike. And this is why ID isn't typically taken seriously in conventional science, because there's no model. It doesn't make any predictions. All it does is, is point at things that look complex, like the genetic code or cells being factories, and say, how could that happen? And you know, I study, as everyone here knows, large species. So change in large species 
isn't there's not really all that much going on. You've already, like Lex I said earlier, at Luca, you've got all the equipment there. It's small tweaking to get this vast array of biodiversity that we see in the itty bitty little corner of the tree of life that is multicellular organisms. And so because of that, macroevolution is, is really and truly doing all of these things. This is what evolution predicts. This is what we see in molecular phylogenies. This is what's recapitulated in the fossil record. Um, and, and multiple different levels of each of these fields cross-corroborate one another. So two different molecular phylogenies will corroborate. The age of the earth will corroborate um, certain layers where fossils are found and where those fossils are found will corroborate the molecular divergence of two species. So from an intelligent design position, especially from a young earth intelligent design position, what you guys, in my opinion, and you know you can take that for what's worth, um, what you have to do is you have to present a competing model that cannot just say, here's a couple of ideas, but say, my idea is better and precludes your idea because X, Y, Z. But I've never heard that from any folks at ID, um, and, and um, I don't think that I will. So I'll pass it on to Angela. Of course, um, uh, if creator was involved to create life and biodiversity, and he will not repeat the event, so we cannot test it. But what we know is that intelligence can instantiate certain features, like uh, multi-part irreducible complex machines, which require foresight with a, with a distant goal. And we see that actually not only in abiogenesis in regards to the origin of life, but also, for example, in regards to photosynthesis, which emerged very early in the history of life. And if you have studied it, then Erika, you know that photosynthesis is enormously complex. And we have there, for example, the oxygen evolving complex, which makes oxygen. And if you go into the details and into, into the proteins, you will see that there are three or four proteins which are involved in, in splitting the water. And there is the molybdenum center the 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 the, the cofactor which is also involved and you need you need a water environment around it which is actually produced by these proteins and if that is not there you will not have the, uh, the, the split of, of uh, water and you will not have oxygen and you will not have advanced life so once you don't have an explanation just for uh, a feature like this you can forget the entire narrative that no intelligence was necessary to create all biodiversity. Now, in regards to evolution, I think there is a broad agreement that microevolution and speciation uh, that that occurs, but that is actually second secondary speci speciation, which is split of populations which cannot breed anymore. But the big question, which has never been demonstrated, is the arise of of, of big different and new features like eyes, like ears, like legs, like bones, like uh, multicellularity, all these kinds of things. And um, that is a big open question and science has no explanation on this. Now, the gene-centric view, Erica, I think it is long due that this is be put behind because we know that epigenetic information is far a bigger factor actually that which directs the construction of body architecture than only genetic information alone. I catalog over 30 epigenetic uh, codes which are all involved in construction of organism uh, form. And 
I think the view has to be shifted from a gene-centric view to a holistic view or to a systems biology view where many or more factors are actually considered. And that is epigenetic codes, that is signaling pathways, uh, and that is a special gene regulatory network which you cannot simply change or mutate and Davidson, which, which was basically um, a, 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 a pioneer in research of the gene regulatory network. He made it very clear that you cannot just uh, mutate things and expect that things will go well. No, uh, there is very, very narrow uh, uh, space to change things. And if you don't, then the whole thing goes havoc and doesn't work. So I think that the, the view has to be expanded where epigenetic information is taken into consideration to explain large organismal construction. And once that you consider that, you have to ask yourself, well, do unguided uh, uh, events actually account for that kind of complexity? And I would say no, because all these epigenetic codes, they have also to be explained. Where did they come from? First, you have to actually make them and then like for example in histones there is the histone code and there are the histone tail which is read by readers which is erased and there are other other uh, proteins which actually write on the histone code and there is communication between them and that regulates uh, how the, the the histones are the the, the the genetic information is expressed and all that kind of complexity which is far greater than anyone has ever uh, imagined that has to be accounted for. And I think that natural, unguided, non-intelligent mechanisms simply are not sufficient to explain that kind of complexity. Uh, well, you know, uh, just as a parenthetical, uh, I published two papers in the last few years about gene regulatory networks. Uh, and these are model networks. I didn't look at actual real biological networks because that's extremely difficult. But I found the models to be so, with only a few genes, like five genes, when you start looking at how these things work, it's, it's what Otangelo said, it's staggeringly complex. But that happens simply because of the mathematical and uh, I guess you could say stochastic nature of what happens when you have one thing that regulates other things that have, you know, that regulate themselves and go back and forth. And, and so what you, you, it is true that you can, you can derive the idea that these very complex systems must have been designed by an intelligent designer. But it's also true that in many cases, including, for example, the, the uh, arising of certain gene regulatory networks, they can also arise because of stochastic processes that lead to naturally just in the computer. And John may be able to back me up on this. Y you can get incredibly complex results just by writing the right code and writing the right model and having it go. <laughs> and, you know, people have done that. Uh, so I don't think that complexity by itself is a sign of non-evolution or of intelligent design. I think, I think in some ways complex, 
when you talk about the protein synthesis system, I agree that level of complexity and that level of, of just, I, I don't even have a word for it. Complexity is not a good word. It's just amazing. That's really hard to explain from an evolutionary point of view. But as I said, we're talking abiogenesis here and there's no good model. Uh, actually, John asked me at the very beginning about replication fidelity. Did you, did you, is that I did, right? Yeah. Yes, sir. So I'll just say very quickly that my last paper, uh, which just is still in press, it's about to come out, was on that issue, on the question of replication fidelity. And yeah, it, uh, in order for life to work, including survival and evolution, the, the accuracy of uh, DNA replication is 99.99999% can't be a hundred percent because there has to be some very some errors to allow for variation mutation but the accuracy is incredibly high and not just for dna replication but also for protein synthesis and that and you can't explain that as an evolutionary model uh so well, it, so it, 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 so did your um i think in line with this one of the things that has to be discussed in the how that fidelity is accomplished is the error correction mechanisms that's right so and that's how it's accomplished the, the there are error correction mechanisms that are uh, i mean whoever you are whether you, <laughs> you you read about these things and you just say oh my god wow i mean this that's amazing stuff and uh and they're, they're all over the place these error correction mechanisms did they evolve well, they might have evolved if evolution was possible. The problem is that before you had accurate replication, you couldn't have evolution because evolution requires accurate replication. So that's a real problem. And, and that's, well, that's what I'm focusing on. But well, it's up to that I think is taken for granted is from a communication theory, information theory perspective, everything that we're doing in our technology right now is we have incredibly complex multiple layers of error correction codes right they're separate from just the actual information code you have error correction codes themselves That's right that are needed in order to account for the noise in the transmission channel right and we, i mean this we have the literal parallel in yes yeah and that's, yeah i agree i agree and, and i'm not saying i know you agree with i'm just saying that i think it's something that has to be looked at from the macro view of all of these things is these things exist it's not just like they're in place. And for me, this in context where you're talking about like protein synthesis, for example, the, I mean, just the differences between prokaryote versus eukaryote right. to me is rather significant. And that's in the, that's under the quote unquote, uh, you know, evolution umbrella is going from the yeah. prokaryote transcription translation process to the eukaryote. Yeah. And to my knowledge, nobody has an answer for that. Am I wrong? I mean, I, I concede to you if, if there is an answer for that, but as far as I've known, there is none. Uh, no, I, I don't know of it. I, I think there may be one, but uh, I, in other words, the, the re really major molecular changes that go on from prokaryote to eukaryote uh, translation uh, are not understood in terms of mechanism of how they there's develop. recent work on it that I can put in the comments. There may, there may be that I'm not aware of. Yeah, that'd be good. Uh, but it, but these are all areas of research. And I, speaking of which, and, and this is this is expanding on something Erica said. You know, evolutionary biology is not fixed and static. 
Darwinism is long gone, whatever that, that originally was. Uh, Neo-Darwinism is long gone. So evolutionary biology, like most good scientific theories, is in constant flux and continuously changing. And I've written about something called the uh, extended evolutionary synthesis, which includes some of the things everyone has talked about, horizontal gene transfer, uh, epigenetics, which Otangelo mentioned, uh, a lot of other things, niche construction. There's a lot more interesting mechanisms for how evolution works than the original, okay, it's a point mutation, a structural gene, you get a change in the genotype, change in phenotype, natural selection, boom. That's oversimplified. That's not a good theory anymore. And, and nobody in evolutionary biolo biology, except maybe somebody like Richard Dawkins, who's not really a scientist anymore, but you know, he's, he's slow to catch on. But you know, the whole endosymbiogenesis uh, from, from um, uh, oh, what's her name? Lynn Margulis. Thank yeah, you. Margulis. Yes, right. Uh, Lynn Margulis and, uh, you know, all these other ideas. I mean, Dennis Noble, who is a, uh, a British physiologist, has written some great books about not about anti-gene centric uh, stuff, okay? That it's not the genes, it's other stuff. It's holistic. So a lot of the arguments that I'm hearing that you guys are making I'm agreeing with because they're they're actually part of evolutionary theory. Okay, evolutionary theory is is not your grandfather's evolutionary right. theory. It's it's not even my evolutionary theory because I'm pretty old. Well, <laughs> can I add something onto onto that side that I think is really important is that you know if you're walking through the desert and you stumble across across some kind of pyramid or structure you see the structure and you think, oh, wow, that's really cool. Like someone ancient built this structure, obviously, or maybe, I don't know if you're an ancient aliens person, then you're like, oh, wow. I mean, I think that stuff is um, not, big, not a big fan. Um, but you look at this structure and you would say, this structure exists. Here are all of the facets of this structure. We can study the structure. We can study the nature of the structure. Um, and we can get a ton of information about that without knowing how that structure was built. Um, it, you know, it's kind of like the, the, the origins or bust thing is kind of, it's very silly to me as someone who, who looks at the, at the large scale stuff, because it's like, you know, take a computer, for instance, I can look at my computer, I can know what my computer does, I can know how to code things on it. Um, I can tell you a lot of stuff about it. I don't need to know who made it to, to, to do that. And the fact of the matter is... Hey, would um, you deny that somebody had to make it? Well, in the case of a computer, yes, for part of the example. And, and the pyramid? We can switch it to an arch. I mean, okay. let's say. Let's okay, say so it, so is the technology that enables you to exist more or less complex and more intricate and more interdependent well, let's than computer example. technology? I mean, I'm I'm using it for a simple segue, but if you want to get into it, we can use an example I used with Otangelo the other day when we were discussing. I'm happy to do that, John. Well, no, um, I, I, no, I'm saying if you're going to go down the rabbit hole of, I would, I don't need to know about who created it. Or I can't. Are you making the statement that we should just ignore trying to figure out who? Oh God! No. Or, no, or no, are you no. saying that we can't actually make the inference? No, that no, no. Would have had to been in place. The case that I'm making is that regardless of how abiogenesis happened, whether someone did it or whether um, someone implemented the, the fine tuning to it, doesn't change the fact that you're an ape, you're related to other apes, and that animals change on the large scale, and that the Earth is very ancient, and that these things corroborate each how other. Many how many different novel genes are there between us and chimps? Very, very few. Less than between rats and mice, John. It's not 1,400. It's less than between rats and mice comparatively when you account for the size of the entire genome. Okay, so how many base pairs is that? 
the differences between humans and chimps? Yeah. Well, it depends on how you're measuring it. Well, I mean, it, it, somewhere between at the low end, thirty-five million, correct? Wait, wait, wait. Are are you trying to are you trying to do this on like a, oh, humans and chimps actually aren't as close as people say? Is that uh, what? I'm, no, no, no. We're, we're talking about from a plausibility perspective. You're claiming that this is just a totally reasonable thing to conclude that somehow happened. Okay, so John, you how, how, what, how much time it, from your model? About you that you, make, you make fun of my model from from your model. How much time is there between uh, the previous ancestor between humans and chimps and now? Oh, John, are you, sure, are you sure you want to get into the answer? For your timeline, what is it? I mean, right now it's looking like 7 to 13, depending on who you talk to, depending okay. on what you're looking at. Okay, cool. So the how many uh, how many mutations per generation? Oh, this is cool. I actually have the math. I did this math myself. Let me pull it up. We have a bit of time. This might be the uh, might have to be the uh, last issue that we can discuss before we go yes, into the Q&A okay. as we have a lot of questions. Yeah, so while while I'm pulling this up, because John, I actually covered this in a video where I performed the math myself and showed that the um the the, the predictions made by the, the differences between the two genomes is precisely predicted by evolutionary theory. It was actually some very fun stuff. I'll link the actual video in the description. But if memory serves, it was actually in my recent. Uh, I think I'm done with uh, these creationists. Which so so, so while you, while you're while you're finding all that, Dr. Gard, do you think it's actually plausible that uh... 35 million uh, mutations can be conserved in that timeline? I don't know what you mean by conserved. I, I'm sorry. I, well, I mean, we have we have no less than 1,400 novel genes that don't that exist in humans that do not exist in chimps. So, and so I'm mean, just saying if there's 1,400, right, completely unique genes, well, they're not completely unique. They didn't. They're not de novo genes. That the, there is something called de novo genes. Well, true, true. The I, I believe the, 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 these ones are, I refer, the ones I'm referring to, I believe, aren't de novo. Um, the uh, so that's point one. And then in conjunction with that, in terms of differences in gene expression, we have in terms of like cognitive function, for example, um, it's now it's known beyond doubt that there's many papers on this that. Uh, MI and SI RNAs are causing dramatic variations in gene expression. Yes, in, quantify in quantify the expression for us. Do the thing that's not actually been done in the literature, because that that expression difference has not actually been quantified. And here's the math for you, by the way. So I, I'm, we, I'm pretty we, sure I have a paper on it. Said between the the Indel one. Yeah, I saw that in I saw that in your cast of, of papers. Sure the Indel one. On yeah, it right, doesn't. I do uh, have to. We do have to. Uh, I want to give a chance to. Erica, I think you were pulling up some materials. Yeah, so I've got that. So I've got pulled up, and then I've got one or two more things to say. Erica, I think um, and then, then I'm, I'm happy materials. to pass it on. So the difference between human chimps, humans and chimps, if we're assuming a 7 to 13 million year divergence, a generation time of 25 years, which is the average for a chimp, and you need 30,000 mutations, or sorry, 30 million mutations. So if you've got 7 million times, or divided by 25 times 2, because we're, we're looking at diploid organisms, you get approximately 560,000 generations. The haploid mutation rate is approximately 50 mutations. Um, and you end up with 560,000 times 50, which equals 28 uh, million mutations, or uh, approximately 52 million mutations, which is more than appropriate given our estimates. And what Sai said is true, actually, 
these aren't de novo. The difference is that even when you account for expression, and I've looked into this gratuitously because I study extent, extant primates. That's what I'm getting my master's degree in. So we, I have to know comparative genomics. So humans and chimpanzees, humans and all of genus Pan, no matter how you cut it, no matter which gene you're looking at, whether you're looking at the X or the Y chromosome, so long as you're looking at the sequence identity, which what matters, which is what matters with heritability and relationship, you end up with humans grouped with genus pan and the rest of the great apes and the hominoids. If you are going to reasonably say that rats and mice are related or that lions and tigers are related, John, there is no physical way, chemically, genetically, however you want to look at it, by which you can separate humans from the hominoids, even if you're including expression. Because I've seen some of those indel papers recently. They don't quantify it. All it is is essentially saying, yes, there are indeed some differences in expression. Of course there are. We're separate species. Humans aren't chimps. We are closely related to chimps. And to what Otangelo said okay, earlier- Erica, don't spew that standard idiotic- Hold on one second. I do, I, I'm not I do saying have to let her finish. I do have to let her finish. I do have to let her finish. All right, I hate, to, I hate to mute you guys. Uh, you're both in the penalty box, but just basically, uh, if Erica had a chance, or I think that Erica had a last point that she was about to start. If it is related to one of the actual things that John brought up, we can cover it. If it's not, let's skip it. And what we'll do is we do have to jump into the Q&A pretty quick here. So let me know if it was uh, relevant to one of John's things that he had brought up. Otherwise, like I said, it would be best to skip it. It was actually related to Otangelo's opening statement, but it's very pithy. Um, the, the, the relationship between the evolution of language, I, I can, because again, extant primates, that's, that's actually what I specialize in. We had a whole block on the evolution of language because as it turns out, pretty much all the way up to a, about a five-year-old's language capacity, you can map that in extant primates. Chimpanzees have the gestural repertoire that is instinctively identical to what we see in, in three-year-old, three-year-old humans. You've got Campbell's monkeys that show syntax and grammar in their vocalizations, and all monkey vocalization patterns from geladas upwards, that's all your anthropoids, follow Zips and Menzerat's law, which are the base laws of all human language. So while language is something that's special to humans, I agree, we take that and dial it up to 11. This isn't something that there's this huge stopgap in, as, as is, has been very common in conversations with, with creationists and intelligent design advocates. It's not that there's this huge gap and oh no, wow, scientists are floundering. Nine times out of 10, and I, I actually can't think of a, of a one-tenth, so I'll just say 10 times out of 10 that I've encountered it, that gap is bridged by empirical work of hardworking scientists who have gone out there into the swamps and whatever and recorded these vocalizations, quantified them, coded them into something like RStudio, and shown which linguistic laws they occupy and abide by. And what that tells us is that all the way up into some of the dumber monkeys, we're seeing usage of syntax suffixes that actually change the meaning of the word. And while the vocabularies are very limited, they skyrocket the second that you get up into the great apes. Um, so so I, I would love to have that pithy. conversation with you at some point, Otangelo, I'm done. I was just going to say, I'd love to have a chat with you on the evolution of language, Otangelo, because as it turns out, one of my colleagues in my program actually did her thesis on the evolution of language and studied Gibbons. So. It looks like this may be a decent time to go to the Q&A. There's always got to be one side that gets the last word in these conversations. And so uh, given that we did have Otangela and John start, we'll let Erica have the last word on this part of the conversation. Do want to say thanks, everybody.
all of our guests. I think I think it would probably be good, James, if both parties got to say a last word. I think that's only fair. I don't think John and Otangela have had a chance to. I monologued first. John monologued, then I monologued, and so I think they should probably. I, I I'm sure Sai would be amenable to splitting whatever last word we have with with them, so that they feel like they can get what they want to say into. I'm not compelled to do that, just because uh, the only reason. Don't get me wrong. I do like everybody having a chance to respond. We I'm totally open to having you guys again. It's just that we do have a lot of questions, and we okay. we're already an hour and are we an hour and 45 minutes into this thing? Oh, so. No. We uh, do want to kind of move into these questions quick. Want to say thanks so much for your questions, folks. All of our guests are linked in the description. So if you want to hear more from them, you can by clicking on those links. Also, hey, maybe we'll have a round two as this has been, a, definitely there's been a lot of positive feedback. And a question from Mike Billars to start the Q&A. Ask Maddox and Otangelo. Okay, just a friendly troll says, I'm sorry for your loss. Next Caleb says, congrats on the clear win, Maddox and Otangelo. Dueling, <laughs> dueling friendly trolls. <laughs> Steven Steen, speaking of trolls, says, Sai is definitely the prettiest debater tonight. Channel, <laughs> thanks for that, Steven Steen. And then it says, channel housekeeping stuff. Thank you, appreciate that. We, I forgot to mention that in the channel housekeeping. You're right, Steven. And then Mike Billar says, Maddox is on his, Maddox is on, so hit the dislike but erica is on so hit the like in that order we'll appreciate that He's, he is one of the most controversial men there look at him there stroking his beard very he's just plotting his next move uh thank you for your <laughs> your question brennan says things are too complex for me to comprehend therefore god is this dude's whole argument i don't well what do you guys think otangelo and john i'm not sure who i can't remember when they said that but do you agree i'm, I'm responding to them because i don't know how many times i have to tell these idiots that is not the conclusion that is being reached. oh i don't know it could be happened therefore it's god is literally the antithesis of the entire point that is being made i make arguments and so is otangelo in direct relation to things whether or not they are plausible in and do direct comparisons and for examples all the time of how in no other context this stuff would be considered remotely rational to think it happened without intelligent agency being the direct catalyst. And I yield. Gotcha, thank you very much. And uh, we do have, let's see, we have some love out there. This one was from Lord Bryant who said, tell Dr. Gart I said hi. Absolutely will do. Hello, Dr. Gart on behalf of Bryant. And then Brienne, thank you, Brennan, thank you for your question said things are too com oh we got that said only science can make specific prediction like this brilliant woman and show it to come true seems that cannot be done with god is that something i respond i mean i appreciate that if that's a compliment i certainly appreciate it yeah predictions that come true are the hallmark of a good model and that's where i think intelligent design fails there are no predictions there is no model it's just evolution bad things look complex and that's fine if you want to say that but they're the legit folks who are out there like Sai, for instance trying to figure these things out and really get into the meat of okay these things are really complicated how do they come to be that way what really is the answer um instead of uh um saying eh, complex what are you gonna do yes so again they, uh, america is embodying we'll the atheist who doesn't actually listen to the words that come out of my mouth because i literally just addressed that same point that you just made in response to a question 
So apparently you weren't paying attention as you- Well, know. I guess I, if you think I was talking about you, then you might have a bit of an ego thing. Cause no, I was... you were talking about a concept. You were talking about a concept yeah. that I was just addressing. In general, you just, re you just reiterated the same concept that the person in the super chat we also go to the stated. next one. So I, again, it's I, literally I, the question I, after that you're using that same response. Not, apparently not you're not paying attention. Must, okay, I hate to do this. We, we do have to I go to the next one. I hate to do this. We, we, this, I, I, not in all fairness, I think the, the uh, super chat was targeting John and Otangelo. So I want to give them the last word. Communist yeah. propagandist says, Erica, how does morphology explain your huge brain? Thank you for that. That's, that's kind. I descend from a, from a line of organisms with increasingly large brain cases and am no larger than anybody else living at this same time period. But we thank you. Appreciate your humility. We call her YouTube's favorite daughter. We always, they're always happy to have Erica. Ruben, Bosch says, thank you for taking my question here again for the curious. My question is, is evolution pseudoscience like critical race theory? Why or why not? Sigh <laughs> laughs. I like it. Uh, they, they asked everybody. They said if anybody wants to respond, all four can. I'm going to pass on that one, honestly. Yeah, I, my laughter was uh, not sympathetic to the question. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. John I mean, Otangelo. We, we can agree. I, I, well, I agree with Dr. Gard on many things. In this context, I will conduct a rarity and agree with Erica. We can, we'll find common ground one of these days, John. <laughs> wow, nobody's taking a swipe. Uh, let's see. Okay, well, fair enough. Next one. Sigifredo Sarabia says... Sai, you said that because we find something highly improbable doesn't mean that God did it. How can you not call it a miracle that you believe in to you believe in to sway ID or divine design for the atheist scientist? I'm a little confused. Oh, yeah. Sigifredo Sarabia always likes to throw us a curveball. Sai uh, is actually not an atheist. Uh, last time I checked. Are you still a no. theist? Okay, gotcha. <laughs> he, he knows that. Uh, I don't think that's what the question meant. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, I can read it again if it'd be helpful. Yeah. I. This, there's some extra words there, so I don't know. Could you read it again? I, I, I didn't. Sure. Yeah, they said... Uh, you've said that because we find something highly improbable doesn't mean that therefore God did it. Right. Thus, how can you not call it a miracle that you believe in intelligent design or divine yeah. design? Oh, divine design. Okay, yeah. Uh, well, oh boy. You know what? I suggest you read my book. It's all laid out there. <laughs> Well, absolutely. It's too. I, I mean, it, that's a very complicated question. Uh, my own personal beliefs, and it it's kind of outside of this topic, which is evolution. You know, uh, but I I do just and and it's it's a good question because you know it, it raises the question: How does a Christian who believes in God, who believes in miracles, you know, and 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 I'm not alone. There are, there are thousands of us. Uh, how do they deal with that with evolution? And, you know, it's a complicated answer. So that I, I guess I'm not either my book or you could read Francis Collins or a number of other books by evolutionary creationists, which is what I am, uh, that describe how that works. 
Gotcha. Thanks so much. And all guests are linked in the descriptions, folks. So encourage you to check out the description box below. Kakarot says standing for truth is still claiming that genetic entropy is real. Okay, well, this is like so he's this battle with standing for truth is spilled into the live chat. Sigifredo Sarabia, uh, let's see, says, Why is there an argument asking where the, quote, information came from, unquote, when they're giving you an answer? Rather than questioning, can you explain how the information got there applying God in the process? Not true, that's four. Yeah, that's for the ID folks. They're asking for a model. That's that's okay. actually what the question is. It's saying, how do you apply God to the model of the origin of information? How do you create something that can can? Um, okay, so if it's directed at us, so let's think about this uh, premise just for just for a second conceptually. Um, that would be like asking Doctor Gart how he or a, one of his peers came up with an idea to create something custom in their laboratory and then be like say because i don't know exactly what the process was that they followed to execute this it mustn't have been the result of an intelligent agent and i'll toss it over to you uh Sai, just for a second so i know you are familiar with dr tour um his uh nano car it's 12 molecules yeah. it was 382 pages of processes they delineated to create this thing um <laughs> If you, as a chemist, I know you're a biochemist, but as, as a professional chemist, if you looked at that, would you ever come to the conclusion, if you, you, you didn't know who he was, you just came across this, you were looking at it uh, into the appropriate uh, technology, um, would you ever conclude that somehow that thing just created itself? <laughs> yeah, that's a leading question. Of course not. Uh, so I, my, I rest my case. Yeah, I, I think the analogy is okay, uh, but it but it, it it doesn't answer Erica's question, which is even if you don't know how Jim Tour was able to you know get all these synthetic steps and try them out and make them work, and there's a little evolution in that too. By the way, I'm not a synthetic chemist as he is, and he's a genius at it, but I do know a little bit of chemistry, and uh, you know it. it it's not just having the good idea, it's it's trying it, seeing what doesn't work, modifying that, seeing something that does work, then going with that, which sounds very evolutionary in some ways. So I think what, what may be being asked, though, is not so much that, but let's assume there is an intelligent designer, okay, which, which I actually do. I mean, I believe in God. Uh, but even if I believe that God did it, meaning that God created everything, I still want to know how. And we have answers to that. We, we, we are getting answers to how God created, <clears throat> excuse me, for example, you know, the world, uh, stars, uh, galaxies, things I don't understand at all. But, you know, there are answers to, there are models in, of creation. And, and I think it, I actually do agree with Erica that it, it behooves intelligent design. And, 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 and you know, as it, you may have figured out, I fall into the ID camp when we talk about abiogenesis. But my goal is to figure out not that God created life, but how did God create life? Because that's the scientific mission. Now, I don't know if it's going to succeed. It may not. It may be what you're saying is right. John, that we'll, we can't get that. We can't get there because it's 
understanding the mind of God is even harder than understanding the mind of Jim Tour. <laughs> okay, but we should try. And I, and, I, and I think a lot of people... I, 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 we, we, the, I, I hate to do this, but Jimmy, sorry, we do, so this James, question James, originally James, was addressed... Listen, no, no, no. This question was addressed to Otangelo. So I, I do want to not let Otangelo oh, get left sorry out. sorry about that. Um, we, no, it's not a problem. It's, uh, but given that we've heard from, I think, everybody else on this question, I want to at least, because uh, it was addressed <laughs> to Otangelo, I want to give him a shot to say something. said, why yes. is there... So, Otangelo, did you, do you remember the question? Yes, we don't okay. know how God did it, but that doesn't mean that it is the best explanation. I mean, um, for example, if I want to make, I'm a machine designer. If I want to make a machine, then I sit to the drawing table, I draw it, the, 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 the measures, everything, it goes to the factory and it is done. So we know that intelligence can actually instantiate things in the natural world. Now, how that interface actually works, how my mind can operate and influence my brain to give the order to my arm to move it and do things, we don't know that. We do not have a question in regards of that, but we know that it happens. So the point which Erika was making, oh, but intelligent design doesn't have a model. Okay, but we know by experience that intelligence can instantiate and make blueprints and make machines and make factories and computers and transistors and turbines and uh, energy plants and all these kind of things which we see in, in life in the cell. So by experience, we know that it is, it is possible, but we do not know that unguided random events can do the same. We do not have any evidence whatsoever that unguided random mechanisms can make blueprints and machines and factories. Well, next up, stupid whore energy strikes again. She says, for team ID and in parentheses uh, slash psi, if you've proven God is the intelligent designer or divine designer, can you explain why a perfect design designer can make so many flawed things? You know, I'm getting really annoyed with the standard talking points uh, that we keep finding out that things that were claimed to be examples of bad design, we keep finding out that they actually had reasons behind them. And from an engineering perspective, that solved all those problems. That just continues to keep happening. And uh, I'll leave it at that. If anyone wants to talk. Thank you. Sounds good. Just to keep moving, because we do have a lot of questions. Thank you very much for your questions. Sigifredo Sarabia strikes again, this time saying... Oh, no, I'm so sorry. That last question was from Sigifredo Sarabia. This one is from Stupid Horror Energy. She asks, why would God use cytosine in the code, which has a predisposition to spark a mutation, results in some fairly radical substitutions in protein folds? I think it's a great question. She always asks great questions that, that you know, kind of point to the, uh, the very haphazard nature of evolution. Yeah, so the last time she asked that question, I responded, I actually looked it up, I forget exactly what it is now, but there's actually a benefit to it, and I'm trying, I forget what it is, exactly what it is, I'll have to find the paper again. But there's actually a whole paper on the actual benefit of 
that whole process in, uh, I'll just find the paper again, but I actually addressed it. Actually, in a couple debates ago, when she asked this question, I actually told her, because I read from the paper of why that uh, why that was and the, and the actual beneficial that component of it. But Well, cytosine gets methylated, and methylcytosine is one of the major epigenetic marks, and we were talking about epigenetics earlier. So cytosine is not a bad nucleotide. Uh, the other thing about cytosine, uh, as she probably knows, is that it's very labile. There's, uh, there's a lot of questions as how cytosine actually was able to, to be used in early life. But uh, anyway, that, that's all I can say about that. Gotcha. Thank you very much. And next up, this one comes in from, you guessed it, Erica's dad, Nephilim Free, says, Otangelo and a learning or logical, plausible, probable, if I host an after show, will you guys come? Yes, I will. Oh, yeah. snap. It's on. Oh, well, you, you guys, oh, Erica and Sai, you guys should go crash that, that after show. Hey, that would I'm be. Host, I'm hosting my own, James. I'm sorry. Ah. Sai, you were invited if you'd like to come. Um, Thank you. Well, and Sai, I'm sure that Neff would love to have you on his channel as well. Well, Nephilim and I have a difference in opinion as to who won the debate that we had uh, recently. <laughs> He recently claimed that he, quote, spanked me. Uh, oh, man, I think we need to have round two tonight. Aside then. from oh. other connotations, I don't agree at all. <laughs> Sorry, Ned. Well, I think I'll pass. Very interesting. <laughs> and then Alan Green, thank you. I didn't your... know there was Cy Neff beef. Let's say, okay, that's interesting. <laughs> Oh, I thought we had a very I thought we had a very cordial discussion, but he was bragging uh, yesterday. I can just hear him just yeah, I spanked him. Uh, but thank you, Alan Green. Thank you for your questions. Says gotta be careful what you say about me, folks. <laughs> oh my, Nephilim free. Uh, next, Alan Green says Maddox, if Jesus came out today and said evolution is real, would you give him the same arguments on why he's wrong? <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna respond to that dumbass. Juicy. <laughs> actually, 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 I'm gonna, I'm gonna, actually, I'm gonna respond. Um, so, if Jesus performed miracles directly in front of you, would you uh, accept that he is the Son of God and uh, is divine, or would you consider to continue to argue that you are hallucinating or that God is not real? Thank you very much. Next up, appreciate your question. This one comes in from Slade Chimera. It says, for Christians, the Bible says God knit people together in the mother's womb. Why would that particular God need a code tell, to, to tell it how to do the knitting? Bad theology. <laughs> I've got to respond to that again. This is what we're dealing with on YouTube. At least Erica, in conversation with Erica, we have, and obviously Dr. Gard as well, but the, uh, on the atheist side, can at least have some semblance of high-level conversation. Stupid questions like that. I mean, how do you actually take yourself seriously in terms of are you actually contemplating what it means to exist? If you're going to make comments about, oh, did God knit things together? I mean, good grief. That's the closest thing I've ever gotten from a compliment from you, John. So thank you for that. I appreciate it. Made my night. Highlighted the debate. So much love. And lyingforjesus.org says evolutionary science has, quote, consilience, which is multiple independent sources converging on a strong conclusion. Biology, geology, paleontology, genetics, etc. What does intelligent design have? 
Yeah, I mean, I I don't I don't think that's for me, but since no one jumped on it, I mean, yeah, that that was the whole point of my intro is that you've got multiple fields that are independent of one another that support an ancient earth and evolutionary theory. Um, and if you want to have a problem with abio, like I, I I've got no real horse in that race. I'm I I like talking about it kind of, and I'm happy to have a chat about it. But you know, again, I'm talking macro evolution and specifically human evolution. Um, so yeah, that's my problem. ID doesn't make any of those predictions. And, and Otangelo says, you know, ID can say things. Yeah, but that's not the same thing as a prediction that's set up in a paper and then analytically tested like with like our studio or something where you actually have to run real statistical analysis um, and, and see what the results are. Otangelo or John, do you have a response? Well, I responded in in, in the in the conversation, Erica. That I think that the gene-centric view is over. We know that in order to make complex organisms, it takes much much more information that is commonly known, and science will progress to to unravel more and deeper and layers of of uh, complexity and information. And that really points to design and not to unguided events. Next, we must go to the next one. Situarito Sarabia says, Erica, does evolution explain origins 100% or 99%? Um, I mean, you want to talk about the origins of all modern biodiversity? I would say 100% because like Sai said, we're dealing with a, with Luca, the, the last common ancestor of all life on Earth, which is a relatively complex cell. Um, as far as once you get into the abiogenesis stuff, there's a lot of stuff we don't have figured out. I mean, I'll be the first one to say that. I, I don't think that that means intelligent design, but that's where I come from. I, I find some of the stuff that's been put out compelling, and I think we'll find out more, or maybe we won't. Um, but none of that changes the fact that everyone here is an ape and that the Earth is very old and that all life on Earth currently is related to one another by genetics, which is the only means by which we can tell heredity um, and gender relationships. Gotcha. Thank you for your question. El Spaghetti Spaghetto says, is there any description of the mechanisms of, quote, creation, unquote, outside of the notion that, quote, cosmic sky daddy sang us into existence, unquote. I paraphrase, but that seems to be the main description of the process. No, that's for uh, you guys. I don't think we could. I mean, I, I'll address, I, I love the oh. idiots that use the sky daddy, um, stupidity um yeah so if i use g-code and create a, a program that can run a 3d printer and create something that's totally badass um am i a sky daddy or am i a programmer and a designer and an engineer gotcha. oh wait that's literally what's happening in life gotcha. that's what's being expressed Thank you very much. And Sigifredos Rabia strikes yet again, saying, Erica, if you see a rabbit, was it designed? No. Gotcha. Thank you. And then next, Samuel Lilleholm, thanks for your question, said, for evolutionary side, nature can code meaningful information, like the trochlea or eye muscle. Please explain how nature can code for independent parts with purpose systems like this. I'm, I'm assuming that's for Psy and I, mm -hmm. um, and, and he covered that extensively earlier in the conversation. Precursor mutations are something that we've seen in the lab. We, we know how these kinds of things set themselves up for success. And when we're dealing with macroscopic structures, like for instance, the eye, which is a, a favorite of creationists, you can not only you know trick like a uh, tinker around with that in a lab, but you can see the various stages of that in organisms currently. That gradient exists. 
um, which is not something that we get for every single complex structure. You don't tend to have, you don't always get these nice intermediates, but when you look at, you know, you can map out the, the complexity ranging from an eye spot to a complex camera eye and something on the earth has something within that transitions. And curiously enough, occasionally you can actually find these transitions in the fossil record and eye spots appear before any complex eye. So Sai, I'll toss it to you. Well, I, I would just add to that, that uh, the, the idea of convergence, which has become very uh, prominent in evolutionary biology. And, and you know, the, talking about eyes, I mean, uh, we have the same kind of eye as octopus, which is, you know, not so far distant from us in, in uh, relationship, but the, these structures seem to evolve over and over again in different lineages. So that, that points to the idea that there is some kind of law uh, uh, that, uh, or laws of biology that we don't know yet that constrain what evolution can do in certain directions. Uh, and, and this comes from the work of Simon Conway Morris, who's, who's you know, a, a brilliant biologist, also happens to be a Christian, by the way. Uh, and, and I think that's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a fascinating topic to go into. But Thank too much for now. Thank you very much. And Nephilim Free strikes yet again. He says, for Erica and Dr. Gart, how can material processes create non-physical information, algorithms, and semiotics, in parentheses, DNA? Unless it can, evolution is impossible. Explain why you believe it is possible. Yeah, so I, I have my thoughts on that or they just come from the literature. I mean, there's like pretty much, unfortunately, some a trend that I've seen is that very frequently folks will throw out literature that ah, scientists are scrambling, they can't figure out X, X is a big problem, you go to the literature, there's a proposed solution that's at least been tested with a methodology. Um, and, and so I don't, if memory serves the semiotic stuff and, and assigned meaning to, to things in the code, um, it's there's mystery to it. But this whole thing isn't like this stymie for the entirety of, of, um, of biology with regard to how it works and how different levels of it interact with one another. Um, but Sai, you, you're the biochem guy, you know more about it than I do for sure. Well, I would just say to Nephilim Free, please pay attention because I've said this to you many times, the origin of life, evolution does not describe the origin of life. We don't know the mechanisms for the origin of life. We do know the mechanisms for evolution. We know the biochemical mechanisms for evolution. Uh, they're, they're very ornate, elaborate, beautiful, uh, and they arose with the first living cell. But evolution is not a biogenesis. And by the way, no animal ever turns into another animal. Okay, ever. In fact, it's a really important part of evolutionary biology that that cannot happen. Love so, so, you know, all of these mythical ideas about what evolution is, just, you know, please pay attention, drop them. That None of that applies to what evolution is. Thank you very much. Next up, Jamie Russell says, Dr. Gart, where can or should we distinguish the appropriate place to draw the line for naturalism in our science as believers? Okay, uh, <clears throat> so that's a great question. Um, naturalism, if you define naturalism as 
everything can be explained through natural laws and processes without God, then you have a problem because if you're a believer, because if you're a believer, you believe that God created the natural laws and processes. So that means that if you, in other words, I, I, I really get tired when an atheist said, we used to think, says, we used to think that thunder was from the gods. Now we know it's, you know, what it really is. Yeah, that's true. And all the scientists who come up, who came up with the way the world works through natural laws, were doing it as Christians to understand how God made things happen. And I just think, you know, we should extend that to life as well. Uh, so it's not, it's not nature or God. <laughs> that, that's not a, that, that's a dichotomy that's not true in my view. Uh, science, scientists and, and the practice of science is restricted to looking at methodological naturalism. In other words, we can't use God in when we do scientific experiments, we don't know how. It would be nice if we did, but we can't, so we don't. So when we're looking at, at how things happen in the natural world, we have to only look at, quote, naturalism. So the papers I mentioned that I recently wrote, uh, there's no mention of God in any of them. There never is in any scientific paper. But if you look between the lines, you might see him peeking out. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. And then next up, this one comes in from Zach Brannigan, who says, yes, but can we all agree that pineapple does go on pizza? No. Appreciate that. That person should be arrested and... Uh, <laughs> I'm out on that, too. I, I don't want to hear about pineapple on pizza. That, that... Hawaiian pizza is one of the greatest. Wow. Oh, my God. Nasty guy. Okay, thanks to you. Oh, Tantalo, I have to hear. What do you think, yes or no? Oh no, I don't like it. <laughs> wow! Oh, only John is here. Completely switching, you know. <laughs> yeah, there it is. That's hilarious. Stupid of War Energy strikes one more time, saying, "James is everyone's sky daddy, especially when he looks himself in the mirror after a hot shower." Okay, nasty. Such a nasty lady. Okay, thank you for that. What? Uh, the Maverick says. No, no, no. Silver, well, we'll do the maverick. So they say, how did single-celled organisms form huge di huge organisms like dinosaurs? Um, that's an awesome question. Multicellularity is, is a question that's been tackled by a bunch of different folks. Uh, the most recent work came out last year and discussed how predation is a pressure in, in only, I think it was two out of the five lineages of, of um, clumping algae that they were looking at actually spurred multicellularity. So these, these organisms would group together, uh, stay together, and it, it's not a colony because when this organism reproduced, that second organism began re-reproducing these cells that again stayed clumped together. So it was the evolution of multicellularity, so to speak. Um, so when you know once you get the, the proto-eukaryotic transition, which some have worked on, there's some interesting work on blue-green algae with, with um, existing bacteria that are endosymbiotic with the bacteria around them. And they have their own their own cell wall still, and it's all this weird stuff that I don't quite understand because the biochem scares me. Um, but but yeah, the, the once you reach multicellularity, really cool things start happening really fast. And if there's one thing that I think is really interesting when it comes to the history of life, it's that multicellularity only happened once, which is really interesting and really weird. And and I think that you know if you wanted to come at it from from size perspective, that would theoretically be a position where you could be like maybe that's a directed process. Um, I, I don't think. 
you know, from my perspective, I don't think it's, you know, impossible that it just did happen once because it's very difficult to get multicellularity and, and, um, and indeed eukaryotes, um, especially once we've got the statistics to back up common ancestry like we do. Um, but once it, like, like I said earlier, once you reach LUCA, you're, you've got a supercharged organism that can, can react and evolve to pretty much any environment, as we can see with the biodiversity that exists today. Thanks um, so much. That's Appreciate it. So it. I, I, I hogged our time. I'm sorry, Cy. No, no problem. We've got one last one we can go to, Silver Harlow. This is for you, Otangelo, in particular. They said in your opening, you said neurons need to be precisely placed. I have brain damage but recovered function. Does that not imply that neurons could be in different places? Yes, that could be. I agree. Gotcha. So short and sweet. Thank you very much. Well, I, I'm going to respond to that one too because, uh, as y'all can see from my scar from here to here, I know a little something about uh, uh, brain stuff. And it's actually rather fascinating how our brains have the capacity for rewiring, um, but it requires extraordinary technology on the nano level in order for those processes to occur. And to me, when you really start to get into looking at what is being done in your brain and all, all facets of your of your body uh, from a technology perspective, not just chemical reactions and the bag of chemicals crap that we hear ad nauseum, um, it put in my opinion puts things on a whole another uh, whole another level of consideration. And anyway, God, I, think, I, I think people very naively think that uh, a lot of this stuff can just be explained when they have zero knowledge of what's actually happening on the uh, molecular level to make life possible. Gotcha. Now, want to say thanks so much, everybody. I have big news. Really excited. I just checked. The Kickstarter, which is for that debate that you're seeing at the bottom right of your screen, has just broken the halfway barrier. So really exciting, folks. Namely, the debate between Dr. Michael Shermer and Inspiring Philosophy. Believe me, we're determined it's going to happen. I'm going to be right back with a post credit scene update in particular on that in just a moment. But do want to say thanks so much, folks. That Kickstarter is linked at the top. It's pinned at the top of the chat. And so really exciting news that we finally broke the halfway barrier. Also, want to let you know, folks, all of our guests Erica, Dr. Gart, John, and Otangelo are linked in the description. So if you want to hear more, well, hey, what are you waiting for? You can hear more. You can read more. And so click on those links from our guests in the description. want to say thank you so much to all four, Erica, Dr. Sai, and John and Otangelo for being here. It's been a true pleasure to have you with us tonight. It was fun. Yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed it. I, I To Otangelo and John, I, I would love to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation at some point if you'd like. I want to put that out there that I'm willing and able to have that here on Modern Day Debate at any time of your choosing. Uh, Sai, I think we agree on too much because <laughs> to have any kind of a substantial debate, but um, but I'd love to have a conversation with you if that's, if that's any consolation. I'm having um, an after show on my channel, so feel free to come drop by. I'm just going to have a snack and hang out and talk to some folks in the in the chat room and i think nephilim free is also having an after show so go check that out too that was my mod mode kicking in james no problemo so thank you all four of our guests and 
Last of all, thanks so much, everybody, for your questions. Just for hanging out, hanging out with us here at Modern Day Debate. We do hope you feel welcome, no matter what walk of life you are from. We're a neutral platform hosting debates on science, religion, and politics, and we have many more juicy topics to come. So thanks so much. And as mentioned, I will be right back in just a few moments with updates on that Kickstarter. I don't care if we have to do a car wash in January, I will do that. T-Jump, Steven Steen, and I are going to suit up for a car wash to raise the remaining <laughs> funds if we have to. We're going oh. to make this one happen, you guys, so we will be right back. Thanks so much. Hey, and, James, real quick before we, before we wrap up, um, I want to say I want to thank uh, Dr. Gart uh, personally for coming out and having this conversation, and uh, for those of you who have not read it, I strongly recommend uh, his book, uh, The Work of His Hands, a Scientist's Journey from Atheism to Faith. Although he and I disagree on uh, evolutionary theory, we strongly agree on uh, faith and uh, and God. And uh, I strongly recommend uh, reading his his book. It's worthwhile to you. I take the time. Absolutely. Well, thanks Thank for you, that. John. Absolutely. And all of these guests are linked in the description, folks. So check out those links. Thanks so much. And as mentioned, we'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.